Join me in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 9. And last week we began this wonderful little book of the Bible, this letter, these four chapters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And I encourage each of you to read through these four chapters weekly, at least during the month of September. How rich would that be for your own soul to read through the entire book each week? And if you haven't started that, then hey, start this week. And uh, we'll be there a lot longer than September, I imagine, but uh, you will definitely be blessed if you dig into this book also while we're studying it Sunday, uh, verse by verse. Last week I gave a little introduction to the book in the first few uh, verses there, and I talked about the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ, the worst of sinners, and, and then how he came to Jesus and became really the greatest missionary, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, and how Paul, he's writing this particular letter uh, to the church in Colossae from prison. Remember, he's, it's one of his prison epistles, they call it, which is just a word that means letter. And we believe he's in Rome at this time, but nothing's going to stop the gospel from going out. And he's writing to this little church to, to encourage them, to bless them and build them up in the faith. And also to deal with some heresies and some problems that are affecting the church at this time. Colossae is uh, in what's called Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And uh, it, this letter was written about 60 A.D. So the church was born at Pentecost, just a little after 30 A.D. So we're talking about 30 years. Uh, the church is in the world and reaching people, and people are being saved. And I don't know how old the church in Colossae actually is. It might just be a few years. I'm not really sure. We don't know. But really, the church is quite young overall. And remember, they don't have the scriptures like we have them today. They don't have a complete Old and New Testament. They have probably access to the Old uh, Testament scriptures. But what do they have of the New? I mean, well, they had Colossians, this letter that was given to them by Paul, and maybe a few smattering uh, portions from the other apostles. But they had very little, but they, they had the good news of Jesus. And they embraced Christ. And so what a treasure to get a, a letter from the beloved apostle. But, I don't know if you notice this, but the, the devil never takes a day off, does he? And even at the very beginning of the church, right, the, the devil was attacking and, and bringing all kinds of false teachers and false prophets and, and these heretical teachings that are infiltrating the church. So Paul writes to encourage and build up this little congregation, but he also wants to help them to know the truth so they don't fall for the lies of the devil with this particular heresy that seems to be floating around. We learn that um, this heresy, we don't know a lot about it, but it seems to be a Jewish mystical teaching. And it's kind of the beginning of what's called Gnosticism. And it's the idea that there's a secret knowledge out there. These people, hey, we've got this secret knowledge about God. And, and uh, we can almost be superior to other Christians if we go through these ceremonies and these rules and we worship these angels and we do this and that. And, and Paul is like, hey, that's a bunch of nonsense. Do not listen to them. If you want knowledge of God, you go through Jesus. He is the knowledge of God. So that's one of the primary reasons that he's writing this letter. We also learn that Paul did not um, personally start and plant the church. He was never actually in Colossae that we know of. But he sent a man there, a man named Epaphras. I almost said his name wrong. Epaphras. He was there. He was a missionary sent out by the Apostle Paul, and he's the one who preached the gospel and formed the church, and we believe he's the main pastor there of that congregation. And he's now reporting back to the Apostle Paul all the good things that's going on in the church and their love and their faith. 
But he's also telling them about this concern with his heresy that's starting to creep into this, this new congregation in Paul's writing to combat all these things. And as Paul sent Epaphras to preach the gospel in Colossae, we talked about last week, so Christ sends us into the world, and I send you even into Red Bluff. Remember we talked about the seven and I think a half billion people on planet Earth at this time. And then they say that about two billion people claim to be Christians. That would leave five billion people on planet Earth that don't know the love of Jesus. Five billion people right now. And though we might not be able to reach all five billion, some of those five billion live across the street. Some of them you go to work with every day. Some of them are in your family. Some of them are your friends. So I call you to go out and be a, an epiphras, right, to your community and your friends and give the gospel and love them and bring Jesus to our world, the parts that we can reach. Well, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word, let us read our passage this morning in Colossians 1, starting verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. And all God's people said, Amen. What a passage. It is just chock full of all kinds of good stuff. So starting at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We have not stopped praying for you. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. From the moment that, that the Apostle Paul, he said we there in Timothy and probably some of the others that are working with him, when they first heard about this church in Colossae and their faith in Christ and the love for all the saints, they were excited and they just began to pray for this little congregation. And it says they have not stopped praying since they heard about them. Paul was tenacious <laughs> in his prayer life. We have to understand that prayer is so important. That the hand of God moves according to God's own purpose and will, yes, but also in connection and in conjunction with the prayers of his people. The hand of God moves according to his own will and purposes, absolutely. But he chooses to partner with us, believe it or not, and his hand moves in connection with the prayers of God's people. That just is astounding to me. Right? Why would God partner with us? Really? Because we just mess it up all the time. <laughs> Help us, Lord. He could shout the gospel all over the world. He doesn't need an epiphras or you, but he chooses to use you and me an epiphras because he wants to partner with us. Prayer. Hmm. James 5.16 says the, the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and it's effective. Right? It changes things. God hears the prayers of his people. 
Now, remember, prayer is not controlling God. Well, I just say these prayers and God just does what I want him to do. Right? No, that's stupid. He's the master. We are not. And yet he tells us, though, to seek out his will and then pray according to it. So we're just finding out what God wants and then asking him for it. He's like, I've been waiting. And then he does it, right? Because it's his will. Jesus said that faith moves mountains, right? But you're praying. That's part of that. Prayer and faith moves mountains. But we don't move any mountains. But the one we're praying to certainly can. So just keep praying. Just keep praying. Don't stop. Don't stop. Even if it takes you years and years, a lifetime of prayer, don't give up for those loved ones and those friends and those neighbors and those who need Jesus and those who need to grow and mature in their their faith. Just keep praying. Keep praying. Don't stop. Just think what a lifetime of prayer for your children will do for them in time and in eternity. A lifetime of you just praying for your kids. How will that affect their life now and for all eternity? Don't stop. If you heard of a man named George Mueller, Google him later. Not now. Check him out. He's this amazing man of faith. He prayed and miracles happened. He raised orphans for God is what he did. He never asked a soul for one dime and he raised countless orphans. He would just pray and people would deliver stuff. It was crazy. It's miraculous. He had a friend that he prayed for, prayed for his whole life, and the man would not give his life to Jesus. He wouldn't. I mean, this, when this guy prayed, God moved. But he prayed for this man. He wouldn't give his life to Jesus. And the day George Mueller died, and they put his body in the cold ground, the man stood there looking down at the corpse going down. Well, it was a box, I'm sure. But he's looking at it going in the grave. And that man took off his hat, and he bowed his head, and he gave his life to Jesus. George never saw it. But he sure prayed that man into the kingdom. And you may or may not see it in your life, but if we just keep praying, trusting. First Samuel. That's where we are on Wednesdays that we study the Bible verse by verse. We're in First Samuel right now, and this is chapter 12 that I'm quoting from, and, and, and it's marvelous. So join us on Wednesdays at, at 6 o'clock. He's giving his farewell speech to the nation of Israel. He's old, he's saying goodbye, but he's also saying, he says this, As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. I'm old and I'm kind of retiring here, but I will not stop praying for you. In fact, if I stopped, it would be sin. So I'm not going to do that. So we take from them, we understand the people that are in our sphere of influence. We're the Samuel over our little family, over the people around us, friends and family and co-workers and so forth. So if we fail to pray for them, we're sinning against God. I don't know if we've ever looked at it that way. But if we fail to pray, that means we fail to care, we fail to love, as God's great commandments tell us to love. So let's keep praying for those around us who need Jesus and those who need to be built up in the faith. Let's not sin against God by failing to pray. Oh, how easy it is to stop praying when you get tired and disillusioned. Oh, God isn't answering my prayers. I guess I'm just going to... Don't stop! Be a George Mueller. Now, some of you struggle. You stop. You start. I've certainly done that many times for different people in my life. But some of you, it's not that you haven't... Um, it's not that you're stopping. It's that you never really started. Maybe a little here and there, but you didn't really start praying seriously in your life. Maybe you've been a Christian even for years. That's, that's one of the great weaknesses of the church in America is we fail to truly pray. That's probably why the church is as it is today. That's why the lukewarmness of the church 
I think it's because we don't do what Jesus said, go in the door or room, close the door, and pray to your Father in heaven who's unseen, and he will bless you, he will reward you. Leonard Ravenhill, I love this quote from him, he said, the secret to prayer is praying in secret. Get alone with God and spend time pouring out your heart to him. Pray about your life, everybody else's life. Just talk to Jesus. Learn how to develop that intimate relationship. You don't always have to be locked in your little room. You could be wherever, but the whole point is let's try to shut the world out and spend time with God. We need that personally in our lives, but also churches, uh, we need it corporately. That's what Thursday night is about. We have a prayer time over there in my office on Thursday night from 6.30 to 7. We gather, we give requests, and we begin to pray. We try to lift up the church and all kinds of needs and whatever we can do. We pray for that hour and we'd love to have you. We can't stop praying. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you. Here it is, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's specific prayer here is that the Christians there in Colossae would come to know the will of God in their life. And not just to know it, but to be filled with the knowledge of God. That's a little bit, but filled with the knowledge of God and his will for them. Hey, what's the will of God? It's knowing what God wants for you. It's so crucial to know that. And this is spiritual wisdom. When you know the will of God, that's spiritual wisdom. Hmm. Listening to the Holy Spirit, reading the Word of God, praying, knowing what God wants. The people of this world can develop a worldly wisdom, right? Sure. But Christians need to develop a spiritual wisdom as they seek God, as they listen to Him, and they understand the will of God for their lives personally, for their families. What does God want? What does God desire? And then how to live it out to please God. What a good prayer to pray for yourself. Lord, I want to know your will every day for my life. I want my children, Jesus, to know the will of God, be filled up with it, that they could honor you every day of their life. The will of God is what God cares about. What God values. Hmm. So important to know this. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, it's the same with God. What God treasures is in his heart. Hmm. The will of God is in the heart of God. I bring that up because on Wednesday, actually, in our Bible study, in 1 Samuel, we're learning about King Saul and King David. Well, he's going to be king. We're not quite there yet. But Saul was the first king over Israel, but he was rejected by God. Why? Because he was arrogant and proud, and he sought after the treasure for himself, not the treasure in the heart of God. He didn't really care about the will of God in his life. He wanted to do his own thing, so God rejected him. He said, I will now replace you with a man better than you, Saul, a man chasing after my heart, a man named David. And he's known as a, a man after God's own heart. He knew the heart of God. He knew what God wanted. He knew what pleased God. And he said, I want that. And he chased it his whole life, right? So that's what we got to do as Christians. We got to learn what's in the heart of God, the will of God, what he desires, and then run after that as our life's purpose every day. What are you going to do today? I'm chasing after the heart of God, right? I'm, I'm chasing after the will of God. What he wants is what I want in my life. What he treasures is what I want to treasure. How do you know what's in the heart of God? Well, read your Bible. But I'll give you a heads up right now. The things that are closest to the heart of God are things like holiness 
and righteousness and purity and love and truth, right? These things are the, in the heart of God. In fact, God is holiness and all things flow out of his holiness, his love and his perfection and his sovereignty and everything. But the core of who God is is holy. He's completely beyond us and other separated from us and he's moral perfection. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you want it, and you hunger, and you thirst for righteousness, what's in the heart of God, God says, I'm going to give it to you. He will not deny you his heart. Verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so the whole reason that Paul is praying this prayer for the Colossians is so that they can know how to live a life worthy of Jesus. To live a life worthy of Jesus, that we might please Him in every way. That needs to be the goal of the Christian life. The whole purpose, brothers and sisters, of our existence is to live a life worthy of Jesus and please Him in every way. When you get up in the morning and you're drinking your coffee and someone says, well, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to try to live a life worthy of Jesus and please Him in every way. And I'm going to go to work too, but... My main concern is that I could please Jesus with my life. Oh, I fail, I fail, but I get back up and say, forgive me, Jesus, and I press on. Lord, I want to live a life worthy. I want to live a life worthy. And he teaches me, and he helps me, and he strengthens me, even when I fail. But you could ask, how could we ever live a life worthy of the Savior Jesus? That's a good question, right? For he's so amazing. What life could ever be worthy of his glorious life? We're so weak. We're so frail. We're so mortal, right? Made of dust here. Yet the Bible tells us some amazing things. It says that the God the Father and God the Son come to live and dwell and make their home within us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that. And Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? So with Jesus and the Father living in me, the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I can live a life worthy that pleases God only through His power. Mm. A life that is worthy is a humble life. We've talked a lot about humility lately, it seems like. A couple of weeks back, we were talking about pride and pouring contempt right, on all our pride. But humility is so important. That's a worthy life, a life that's humble. The worthy life is a a dependent life, right? Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. (laughs) I must decrease and he must increase, as old John said, the Baptist. Dependent life. Because if you're not dependent, then you're living on your own and doing it yourself, and that's called pride. The worthy life is a surrendered life. I give it all to Jesus. I surrender. Hmm. All to him I freely give. The worthy life is an obedient life. Lord, I'm just going to serve you. I'm just going to obey you.
Now, this worthy life is also a life that's always growing. Okay, It's never stagnant. We're going to see that in these next part of this verse here. That the worthy life is always growing. It's always learning. It's always maturing. It's not like a like an old pond getting nasty, right? It needs It's fresh water moving all the time towards Christ. So verse 10, And as we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. And then here's the, the growing, bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so a worthy life is growing and maturing. We're never going to arrive. Well, I've arrived and maybe some of you will catch up with me, right? No! We're not going to arrive until we arrive in heaven, <laughs> until we arrive at the throne of God. But until then, it's a constant growing, 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 maturing more and more in the knowledge and the love of God. Hmm. We're supposed to produce good fruit, right? Good fruit, good works that honor and please God in every way. Please remember, though we do good works, though we have good fruit being produced, we don't do good works in order to be saved. We don't do good works in order to make it to heaven. Hmm. The Bible is very clear. We're saved by God's grace through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast and brag, oh, look at me, all the things I did. No, it's only by God's grace that we are saved, but we have to put faith in Jesus. So the Bible is very clear on that. It's Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. But once we are saved, once we give our lives to Christ, then what do we do? Good works. Then we produce good fruit because we love God, right? And we're compelled, we're compelled to go and honor Him with everything that we have. In fact, one could even say that the good works, the good fruit, is the evidence of saving faith. James does say faith without Deeds is dead, right? So if you have true saving faith, you'll produce good fruit in your life. It would be the evidence. It's not what saves us, but it's what comes out of a saved life. Are you growing in the knowledge of God today? Are you growing in good fruit and good works in your life? Are you see here the key is seeking intimacy with Jesus, always being close to Christ, chasing after his heart, and you will be growing, okay? You will be growing. But maybe somebody this morning, you're, you're, you're kind of stagnant. You're not that stream, you're the, you're the pond getting stinky, or you're the pond drying up. That's a dangerous place. So get the water flowing. Chase the heart of God. Verse 11. And being strengthened with all power. All power, I like that. According to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. So the worthy life seeks to please God. It's growing. It's growing. And this is the life that God strengthens with all power. What a cool phrase. All power. Where does all power come from? <laughs> from God, right? God. So the all power of God comes to strengthen us. And he also calls it his glorious might. That's a cool phrase too. God's power is his glorious might. That's pretty awesome. And what is God's glorious might, his all power, what does it do for us? It produces patient endurance and joy in the Christian life. That's what it says, right? 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience and joyful giving thanks to the Father. The Christian life, we have to endure. We have to keep on keeping on every day, keeping the faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I don't know if you've found that out yet or not, but you've got to keep on keeping on. <laughs> keeping the focus on Jesus in the midst of the brokenness of life. Keeping your focus on Jesus in the midst of pain and hardships and disappointments and failures and the attacks of the devil, the temptations to sin, the temptations to, to turn from God and go our own way, the temptations to pride and selfishness and greed and bitterness and blah, 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 all the, all the things we're tempted by. We must endure through all of those things and keep our focus on Jesus but God will be there with all his power, with his glorious might to strengthen us so that we can endure. Now, sometimes when you endure, it's like you feel like you just got to grit your teeth and get through, get through, right? And that's better than not enduring, by the way. But that's not the, the full purpose of God's plan for your endurance. God wants you to endure patiently, as it says, patiently. With joyful praise. So that's better than just gritting your teeth. <laughs> now, if you're gritting your teeth, okay, at least, you're, at least you're enduring. But God wants you to have the abundant life, right? One that patiently endures with joy and thanksgiving. Because I'm resting and trusting in Jesus, yeah. I'm held by the everlasting arms. I'm held by His glorious might. So I don't need to worry. I can just trust and obey. It's like the song we sang. Can I just sit here a while? I'm just going to hang out and trust you. I'm just going to trust you, God. That's a good place to live. Now, some of you know I'm an avid cyclist. I don't know why sometimes, but I have learned that it's an endurance sport, like long-distance running, long-distance cycling as well. And when I did the Wild West gravel grind route west, by the way, the Wild West is on fire right now. <laughs> All those routes that we were on for our event are like, I don't know, they're burning or something. But anyway, the money that was raised, it wasn't a Christian event, but it was a Christian cause. We were giving money towards putting orphans out of the orphanages into Christian homes over in Africa. So beautiful, beautiful way to raise money. But one of the routes, the longest route was 100 miles, okay? So that's the one I did. 100 miles and dirt, rocks, all kinds of nasty terrain. And I've learned you have to endure if you're going to go out and ride your bike for 100 miles. For me, it was an eight-hour day, eight hours of pedaling. Some people a little more, some people a little less. But you have to endure. But how do you endure? You endure through training. Okay? You train yourself to endure. I don't just do nothing and then go out and ride 100 miles. <laughs> it would be very bad. It would be very bad. It was many, many months of training smaller rides, going to bigger rides, and building up the, the physiological changes in the body and the endurance. And I would train. I had training days, and I have days where I do nothing, actually rest, rest days. You need this. very important to rest. Let the training soak in. And I liken this to the Christian life of endurance. The glorious might of God is there to strengthen us and carry us through, but we have to learn to enter into the power. You have to learn to enter into the power of God so that we might endure. You could call that training. you got to train in the Christian life. The Bible sometimes likens it to, to a battle or to, a, to one running a race or a warrior. How do we train? Well, we enter into the might and the power of God by spending time with Jesus. Okay. 
Spending time with Jesus is good training so that you might endure through this life. Enjoying Him, praising Him, worshiping, reading the Word of God, applying it to your life, training to endure. Sunday mornings, you're in training right now. If you're coherent at all and paying any sort of attention, you're getting some training. <laughs> you're really applying it to your life as you worship and praise and trust God in the fellowship of the believers. This is training. So that you might endure tomorrow and the next day, right? But I tell you what, if I only trained once a week to eventually ride 100 miles, I don't think that would be adequate. I think if I did a huge ride on Saturday once a week and finally got to the event, I might make it and I might not. I don't know. That would be bad. I wouldn't want to do that. So likewise, one day of training. If this is your big day of training and you don't train for the rest of the week, you're setting yourself up to not endure very well. It's a day-by-day -day training in the Word of God, spending time with Jesus. You need those times. Now, you and I, we need rest days too, though. That doesn't mean a vacation from God. What that means is, because you can't really pray and read the Bible 24-7, can you? The Bible says to pray continually, but we do the best we can, but we're not really doing that 24-7. So what do you do in the meantime? Let's say you get up in the morning, you read the Word, you pray, and off to work you go. Well, now you're in a rest phase. So what do you do during that time that you can't just pray and read your Bible? Well, you just trust Jesus, right? You rest in the everlasting arms of God at work, at school, wherever you go. I'm just resting in Jesus, right? So I train and then I trust. I rest. And this will build endurance in the Christian life. Train and rest. Hmm. This is why the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he's in prison, they're getting ready to execute him. In 2 Timothy 4, he says this, he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race, right? I endured because he knew how to train, he knew how to rest and trust in God. And then he said, I kept the faith. And then he talked about the reward, the crown of righteousness for him and all who trust in Jesus. We can keep the faith and we can endure, but we have to train. Paul says this as a man who traveled the world in little sandals, preaching the gospel. And many were saved, and many times they beat him and left him for dead and threw him in prison. How many beatings and imprisonments have we had for the gospel of Jesus, right? And yet he endured and fought the fight, kept the faith. But the glorious might of God is there to help the children of God do these very things. Hmm. Yes, Lord. And then uh, Paul talks about doing it with joyful thanksgiving. Joyful Thanksgiving. It leads us into the next verse there. At the end of verse 11, right? The power of God to give us endurance and patience and joyfully, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. God wants the Colossian Christians, God wants the Red Bluffian Christians to endure with his power with joy and thanksgiving. The Christian life is to be full of joy and thanksgiving. So it's not just gritting your teeth, 
<laughs> but it's smiling in the midst of the pain and giving all praise to Jesus. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Well, who are the saints? Those are the uh, people of God, right? Those trusting in Jesus. If you're trusting in Christ today, you're a saint. How about the inheritance? What's the inheritance? Well, understand this. Number one, the inheritance that we have is Christ. Jesus himself is heaven. If he wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven, right? Jesus is the inheritance. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is everything. Now included with Jesus are the loved ones who died in Christ and knew him and loved him, and they will be there waiting for us in heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth one day with eternal pleasures at the right hand of God, it says. There'll be joy everlasting, crowning our heads, and God will wipe every tear from our eye, and there'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain, and the old order of things will pass away. Behold, he's making everything new. Yeah, that's the inheritance of the saints. Jesus himself and the glorious future with him. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we are to joyfully give thanks to the Father for the inheritance that is ours, right? You will get through this life. He will give you power to endure, and then we have eternity, and then we have joy everlasting. It's going to be okay. You're going to make it, right? But you've got to train, and you've got to focus, and you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 12. It's pretty staggering. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Huh. God qualifies us for heaven. Did you know you had to qualify for heaven? You do. We have to qualify for heaven. Here's the bad news. Nobody qualifies. <laughs> Except for Jesus. <laughs> so he qualifies for us. No one's good enough to go to heaven. We do not meet the standards of God's righteousness and holiness. We do not qualify. Romans 3.23 All have fallen short, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We qualify for hell, actually, because of our sin and rebellion. But then there's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is why we love him. Because God qualifies us for heaven. How did he do it? By sending Christ to die in our place. To die for our sins. The holy, sinless, perfect Lamb of God who bore our sin and shame at the cross. He took our punishment. He paid for our sin to qualify us for heaven. So we're not qualified for heaven on our merit, but on the merit of Jesus. What he did for us in his perfect and sinless life. Oh, praise his name. He takes away all our sin and gives us his righteousness. Let me read you Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, it says, Now a righteousness from God, from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. If you could have obeyed the Ten Commandments, the law of God, if you could obey it perfectly, you'd be righteous and you would qualify for heaven. But nobody's doing that, right? Nobody can pull that off because of our sin. But there's now a righteousness apart from the law that comes from God. It says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Ha <laughs> ha. He offers it freely. When we put our faith in Jesus, he then gives us the righteousness of Christ. And we're qualified to go to heaven. Can you believe that? 
What a deal. Why would anyone refuse that? So therefore we joyfully give thanks to the Father as we endure through this life. Verse 13 and 14. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Check that out. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. <laughs> the kingdom of Jesus. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow, what a verse. When you put your faith in Jesus, he rescues us from the dominion of darkness. I've been just thinking of that phrase this week, the dominion of darkness. He rescues us from it. We are a rescued people. We are rescued. We were bound for hell and the hero came from heaven. His name is Jesus, right? He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and he reached into our darkness, right? He, he pierces the darkness with the glory of his perfection, of his death and resurrection and perfect life. He reaches in and he offers us his saving hand and says, I will rescue you. I will pull you forth from the darkness that dominates you and rules over your life and fills you with shame and, and corrupts your mind and, and makes your life filthy. I will pull you out from that into the kingdom of light where there's forgiveness of sins, right? where there's the love of God and you'll be qualified for heaven. The Bible says we used to be slaves to sin. But now we put our faith in Jesus. Now we become slaves to righteousness. And righteousness is our master because we've been rescued. We've been rescued. Huh. The forgiveness of sins, right? God can forgive all sin. Some people worry, is this a sin that God would forgive? I've had people ask me that. What about this sin? I just tell you now, all sin. Jesus already died for on the cross. 2,000 years ago, he already shed his blood for that sin. All sin of the world from Adam to the very last guy, all of it. But the devil will whisper things and say, you're no good, you're worthless, your sin was too bad, he cannot forgive you. Those are lies of the devil. Reject them and hear the word of God because God says he will forgive all our sin. All our sin. He already paid for it. Now what's left to be done is to receive it by faith. It's just laying there waiting. Don't let it go to waste. You want to grab it and take hold of that forgiveness, right? And then live a life worthy, pleasing God in every way, for the glory of his name, filled with his glorious might all along the way. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Well, this morning as we come to a time of prayer, what has God said to you in this amazing passage? There was a lot, I think he said. What did God say that was specifically for you today? Where are you in faith? Do you have faith? Have you given your life to Jesus today? I don't know. Maybe you have, but maybe that darkness that used to dominate you is starting to creep back into your life, and you've got you to gotta slay it. You've got to give it to Jesus and, and, and live a life worthy. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. Or you have, but you've walked away. Would you like his forgiveness? Would you like to be rescued from the darkness? Well, as we close our eyes and bow our heads this morning, if you'd like Jesus to forgive your sins and rescue you, 
if you'd like to live a life that's worthy and pleasing to God, understand we have to put our faith in Jesus. And part of that means that we have to repent. We have to turn from our sin and run to Jesus and hold on to him and learn to love him and obey him and leave our sin behind. But if you'd like to give your life to Christ this morning, would you simply pray this prayer with me? Pray it in your heart and in your mind. You could simply say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Please, Lord, forgive all my sin and rescue me from the dominion of darkness that rules over my mind and my life and bring me into the kingdom of the Son the Father loves. I confess that I'm a sinner. I choose to turn away from my sin and trust in Jesus now. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you, Lord, for raising from the dead to give me life. I put all my hope and faith in you today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live a life that's worthy of your great name. Forgive our failures. Give us strength to endure. And let us please you in every way, Lord. Let us grow in our faith. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your redemption. In Christ we pray. Amen.